Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you keep reading in Romans chapter 1, a few verses from now, we're going to get to a long passage about God's wrath, where Paul is going to go into great detail about the depths of human sin. I think it's important before we get there, though, to, to look at the words before us and see that the tone that Paul is speaking in, and, and let's say the, the place where these words are coming from in his heart is a place of love. Paul is writing to a church he's never visited. He's writing to people he really only knows secondhand through reputation or through people who've been in contact with the church in Rome and have met him on his travels. And yet he feels a deep affection for these people. It's true that he's going to write to them a profoundly theological and doctrinal letter, but he's going to do that out of love. He's going to do it out of a sense of longing. He's going to do it. He's going to send the letter because he's not there in person to give them these things, and he wants to impart a gift to them. He wants to give them something good out of love. And everything that follows in this book, the stuff that is heartwarming and the stuff that is deeply challenging, comes from that desire to give a gift of knowledge, a gift of enlightenment, a gift of strength and help to those Romans and to us as well. It's interesting to see Paul's attitude towards the spread of the gospel, the joy that he obviously feels at seeing this work expand. As we said last time, it's interesting to realize that there could even be a church in Rome considering the fact that Paul had not made it to Rome yet, despite wanting to. Peter had not been to Rome. This was not a church that an apostle had flown into to Rome and, and founded. This is an example of the Spirit outpacing the pace of the apostles as fast as they were moving. The Spirit is working more quickly. Paul sees that with joy and longs to catch up and longs to be with these people. And we, too should feel a similar joy as the gospel spreads, as it reaches to the ends of the earth. Our reaction to that, our feeling about that, should be one of rejoicing. He rejoices in the faith of the Romans, he says, because their faith has been proclaimed throughout the world. People are talking about it throughout the world, throughout the Roman Empire. There's this word that is spreading about these faithful Christians in Rome. And when you first read that, you may be tempted to think, that the reason that he's excited about this is because somehow these Roman Christians have turned out to be prodigies of the faith. You know, Corinth, we know about Corinth. They're, they're believers, but they've got a lot of problems. But maybe in Rome, everything's great. And everyone in Rome is a paragon of virtue. And so this reputation for greatness has spread. And, and as a result of that, he's really encouraged by that. But I don't think that's really what Paul is getting at. He's not encouraged because people are talking about these Roman Christians everywhere for their virtue. I think he's excited that they're talking about these Roman Christians everywhere because they're Roman, because there are faithful people even in Rome. There's a significance to that, that the church has spread so far that even in Rome, it's there. Now, if you lived in Rome back then, 
you could be forgiven for imagining that you lived at the center of the world. You were at the cultural center of the empire. Literally, they say all roads lead to Rome. Like Rome is at the heart of everything. It is the heart not only of power, but also of culture. Throughout the empire that the gospel enters into, the, the infrastructure, the civilization, all of it is Roman. And so to live there in Rome, to be a Christian in the church in Rome, is to be a Christian at the center of the world. But Rome is not in the center of the world if you're looking through the eyes of Jerusalem. If you're looking through the eyes of Jerusalem, Rome is not at the center. Rome is at the edge of the world. Rome seems very far away, not only geographically, but spiritually as well. And the gospel has reached Rome. It has gone so far. Now, of course, you can imagine there's a certain prestige in this. There are Christians even in Rome. It's kind of like... um, you think about the reputation of, of my wife Lori's favorite pastor, Tim Keller. Whenever you talk about Tim Keller, one of the first things you say is Tim Keller pastors a church in Manhattan. It's like, oh, in Manhattan? Really, in Manhattan? In New York City? In like the cultural epicenter of the United States, of the world? There is a church there, and there's something impressive about that. Um, when I go and I tell people I pastor a church in Sioux Falls, I like to think they're equally impressed. But, but you understand there's a certain prestige that comes along with, with having a church at the center of this cosmopolitan culture. But I'm not sure that's what got Paul excited about the idea of the gospel being at work in Rome. It was good. It was good, certainly, that in in, in Rome, in the center of the empire, the gospel was breaking out, that they were faithful in Rome. But it was good for, for another reason as well. It was good because of those words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 when he'd spoken to the apostles and he said to them, you're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so what Paul is seeing couple of decades later, after those words are spoken, is that it's happening, that the words that Jesus spoke are coming true, that the gospel is spreading even to the end of the earth. Jesus had told them in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, and it's happening here, the nation of Rome, the Roman people, those Gentiles who ruled the world, were being made sons and daughters of God. So Paul longs to visit them, but he's not sitting here thinking, wow, wow, the Romans are so powerful and so sophisticated. The Romans are really the tastemakers. So if the gospel is getting traction in Rome, then we've made it. Then this gospel thing is going to stick around. Instead, he's grateful to see the work of the Spirit reaching even to Rome, which he sees as the end of the earth, not the center. There's something else that gives Paul delight, something spiritual, something that God is doing, even in Rome, even so far away, God is raising up people for himself at the heart of that empire. And that's what causes him to rejoice. And it's what should give us cause to rejoice as well. Because the Holy Spirit is not just at work in church places. The Holy Spirit is not just at work in the Bible Belt. 
The Holy Spirit is not just at work in North America. The Holy Spirit is at work to the ends of the earth. You will find him at work wherever you go. We imagine the world separated, divided into the places that are friendly to God and the ones that are places of darkness and unwelcomeness, but there's nowhere you can go in God's creation where God's name is not being glorified, where his spirit is not at work, which should encourage us, which should make us rejoice, which should, should tell us that like Paul, even if we were to travel to the end of the earth, even if we were to go and to live among strangers, people we don't know and who do not know us, we would not be able to go beyond the limits of the work of his spirit. We would not be able to penetrate beyond his power. But Paul's not satisfied to love them from afar. Paul wants to be with them. He wants to unite with the church in Rome. He longs to strengthen them, to give them a gift, he says. This is uh, verse 9, verse 10. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. All of those qualifications, all of those, those extra phrases that he pours in there, he really wants to make it clear to the Romans that he wants to be there. He, he really does. He hopes that he will be able to make it. He wants them to have no doubt about that. Obviously, the fact that, that he's stated an intention to go to Rome is well known to people, and also the fact that he's never gone is also well known. And so it's important to Paul for the Romans to understand why he has not yet fulfilled that promise. It's not what you're thinking. Maybe you're thinking, Paul says he wants to come here, but he never does. Maybe he's just not that into us. No, no. In fact, he's been providentially hindered from, from fulfilling his own desire. He's wanted to come to Rome. Those plans have been long delayed, but, but it doesn't reflect a lack of desire on his part. It reflects a lack of permission on God's part. That's the reason. So, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and Rome is the center of the Gentile world. You would expect that if a church was thriving in Rome and you were the apostle to the Gentiles, you would be on the first boat out of Corinth or wherever, and you would want to get to that epicenter. You would want to get to that church in Rome. But Paul does not serve his own ambition. Paul serves Jesus Christ. Paul is a servant of the gospel. He cannot go where he wants to go. He cannot go where desire or even ambition would lead him. Instead, Paul must be guided by the Spirit. And although it may make sense, given his calling, that the place for him to be is in Rome, what the Spirit says is, for now, the place for you to be is here, in this case, in Corinth. There may be a church with a worldwide reputation and something exciting happening in Rome, but I need you here in this dysfunctional, sin-ridden church in Corinth, and Paul must obey that leading. But he prays for them constantly. He goes to the Lord constantly, lifting these strangers up in prayer, begging to be able to go and, and meet with them and to, to be acquainted with them. 
Prayer follows desire. Prayer follows longing. When we talk about longing, uh, longing for more grace, for more depth, more community, what you do when you long for something that you do not have, you pray for it. Because there's nothing else you can do. Now, I understand when we talk about prayer, usually we talk about it as the opposite of action. Right? People now, if, if there's some great tragedy in your life or in the nation, and you say, oh, I'm offering you my prayers, we all assume what that means is, oh, you're saying, I will not do anything. Right? I'm praying for you, but I won't help. This passage illustrates how wrong-headed that, thinking, that way of thinking about prayer is. Prayer arises out of a deep longing. The reason that he lifts them up in prayer is that he longs for um, their company to benefit them, to build them up. And prayer is the means that God has ordained to express that longing. His heart erupts in prayer, you might think of it that way, as those desires go unfulfilled. Sometimes we pray for things we already have, but mostly we pray for what we lack. Most of our natural prayer that you don't have to sort of force yourself, now what should I pray for? The, the prayer that comes naturally is the prayer for the thing that has been denied to you, for the thing that you do not have. And you see Paul is no different. He wants to be there, but he's not. And so his heart opens up in prayer for them, lifting them up from afar, wanting to give them a gift This is why he wants to come to them. The the reason that he wants to be with them, he says, is he has something he wants to give to them. He says in verse 11, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. When we think of spiritual gifts, we tend to think very, uh, like, like, uh, formally about the idea of there being certain charismatic gifts that are breaking out in the New Testament church, gifts that have a sign value, that testify the authority of the gospel that's being preached. But here, Paul talks about uh, some spiritual gift in a sort of vague way, in a broad way, so that he may be talking about something specific, or he may be talking just more generally to them. Now, because this is a congregation he's not met with before, they don't know the kind of thing Paul teaches, he actually explains what he's talking about. He says, I I long to be with you to give you some spiritual gift. And then you see this dash in those words, that is a clarification, an explanation of what this means. He says, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. In saying that, Paul reveals something interesting about the gifts that God gives, the the reason for them, that they exist for mutual encouragement. Whatever gifts God gives us, he gives us so that we can build one another up, so that we can serve one another, we can encourage one another. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul has an apostolic office. Paul, his conversion story being confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. It doesn't get any better than that. And when Paul writes to the Romans, he doesn't say, you guys really need an apostle like me to come along and impart to you some gifts because I've got all the gifts and you're clearly so lacking. As much as Paul has to give them, Paul frames this gift giving as as mutual encouragement. He acknowledges it's not just one-sided. But as much as he has to pour into their lives, they have something to give him as well. 
they have something to encourage him with. They've been given gifts by God to build him up in the same way. That reciprocity is important. It's important. Sometimes we think wrongly about what church is all about. If you think about church as a sort of uh, event that you attend, if you sitting in those chairs think of yourself as the audience, you are thinking wrongly about church. Because church is a community. We're all participants in this act of worship, all of us equal in the eyes of God, without distinction in the eyes of God, worshiping him together in that way. We think of church wrongly when we think of it as, as a kind of show that we attend. But we also think of it wrongly when we think of church as kind of a, a spiritual hierarchy that has been established so that you and your weakness can come forward so that elders in their strength can, can raise you up. That we've got the gifts and we're here to give them to you and your poverty to raise you up with our riches. That's a wrong view what the church is. Paul makes it very clear that as, as, as high and exalted as, as he is, if he were to show up today, I would shut up immediately. Even so, when he comes among these people, he expects mutual encouragement. You and I together will be built up. You and I together will be encouraged. One of the important parts of the Christian life is discovering our giftedness in Christ. We talk about it here at Grace as finding your way so that you can share your gifts with the world. And the thing about it is you can come to the elders and we can talk about that, but we do not know your way. We don't know the calling that God has placed in your life. We don't know what gifts he's given you. What we can do is help you find those things. But God has called you and gifted you to do things that we could not imagine. If we were to sit down and come up with a plan and just try to fit people in like pegs on the board. Instead, God gifts his people in amazing and incredible ways and calls us to discover those gifts and discover how to use them for his honor and glory. And it may not look like anything you've ever seen before in church. It may not follow an accepted pattern because sometimes the spirit doesn't do that. But that's our calling to find our way, to share our gifts with the world. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He wants to give them a gift. He also wants to reap a harvest among them. When Paul talks about his ministry, his calling, he often uses this agricultural language to talk about it, this idea of harvesting, and it's entered into our, our Christian vocabulary. Right? So when we talk about fields white unto harvest, you don't think fields, you think lost people, people who need to hear the gospel. Right? These metaphors have been so deeply absorbed by us that we don't think of them anymore as metaphors. But this is a metaphor. He is talking in, in agricultural language to describe this action of the gospel, reaping a harvest among these people. He talks to the Corinthians in the same way. In Corinth, there's conflict. 
because of the fact that different teachers have been responsible for different people coming to faith. And in the church, as a result, there's been factionalism. So that those who came to faith through Paul's ministry, they're of Paul's faction. And those who, who came to faith through Apollos, they're of Apollos's faction. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he doesn't take sides. They say, all you who are of Paul, rise up and throw out the, the Apollonians from the church. Instead, he rebukes them all. He says, there, there is no one who is of Paul. There's no one who is of Apollos, right? You're of Christ. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. If you think about what he's saying there, what he's emphasizing, what Paul is emphasizing in this ministry of the gospel is the same thing that we saw him emphasize in his salutation. He's emphasizing divine sovereignty in this gospel ministry. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It was God who assigned to each the converts that that would come about. There's no pride for Paul to take in this or for Apollos to take. There are no factions. It is God working through them. And all those through whom God is working, Paul says, are one, are one together working together. There is no competition, in other words. We plant, we water, we contribute as we are called to do, but we are one body, and it is God who gives the growth. It is God who does the work. So there's an emphasis on God's power, but it's also an emphasis on our unity, the unity of believers side by side, toiling in this field, building up this building this edifice to the Lord. Whether we plant or water, we are one. Whatever your gift is, whatever your calling, whatever the part that you play in the body is, we are all one together, contributing together, building one another up. That unity is important because Paul is writing to what what has every right to be a very disunited congregation. Rome is a melting pot. Many different peoples, cultures come together, ethnicities. And there were also some some interesting dynamics in the sense that some of the people who come together in the Church of Rome belong to some of the other people who come together in the Church in Rome, which makes things a little awkward. There's some power structures there. There's some politics there that makes it really unlikely that all of these people could be made into one body. And so Paul emphasizes the unity that exists, even with so much diversity, so much diversity. Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, you would think, is probably the, the apostle who most had to face the, the, the diversity of the body that Christ was building, who is most pitted against uh, all these different uh, differences of, of language, of culture, having to deal with this polyglot church that was coming about. It was very different from what Paul had grown up with. 
Right? Paul had grown up in a culture that divided the world into two quadrants, Jew and Gentile. And throughout the book of Romans, he's going to emphasize that that distinction between Jew and Gentile has now been torn down in Christ. And now the two are one. But you shouldn't imagine that what's happened is that Paul has left a culture that divided the world into two and entered into a culture that now freely accepts everyone as they are. Like he's, he's moved from this very narrow culture into this very open culture. Because in fact, the Gentiles divide the world up as well. The Gentiles separate amongst themselves as well. There are two hemispheres, two, two uh, halves to the culture that they acknowledge. It's not the, the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Greeks. In their mind, it's the Greeks and the barbarians. The Greeks and the barbarians. We see Paul talking about his obligation, his duty as an apostle. He says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. If you got this letter, you might be thinking, wait a second, which one are we? Are we the wise or the foolish that he's so eager to talk to us? But you probably wouldn't be thinking that. You'd probably know which one you were if you were reading this letter. You would know, oh, we're the wise because we're the Hellenes. The, the word Greek here is a little bit misleading because when we think Greek, we think uh, ethnically Greek, people from Greece. But to be Greek in the New Testament world is something, uh, it, it's a broader concept. It's to be Hellenized. It's to have uh, the Hellenistic cultural education. So you're a literate person. You are acquainted with uh, Greek ideas, perhaps even philosophy. You're an educated person. You operate in a higher class in contrast to the barbarians. I'm sure you've heard the, the etymology there before for barbarians. The idea was if you were an educated, cultured person who spoke Greek and you had to uh, listen to other people speaking their non-Greek languages, it sounded like they were just going bar, 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 like gibberish. And so they came up with this really flattering term to describe people who were not Hellenistic. They're barbarians. And uh, you may be telling yourself, well, maybe at the time that was a flattering term and it only later became insulting to be called a barbarian. But no, it was still kind of condescending and insulting in its original context because Paul follows it up and elaborates the distinction. The difference between a Hellene and a barbarian is the difference between the wise and the foolish. It's never been flattering to be called a fool. So he's saying, I have an obligation to the Hellenistic culture. I have an obligation to the educated, to the upper class. I have an, edu uh, an obligation, a duty to evangelize the Greeks, but I also have a duty to the barbarians. I have a duty to the wise, but I also have a duty to the foolish, to everybody else. In that sense, Paul has a calling that doesn't just cut across that, that Jewish division between Jew and Gentile, but cuts across the Gentile divisions as well. One commentator says, Paul's commission as apostle to the Gentiles embraces all races, both those whom Hellenism owns and those it despises, and all levels of society, both those highly regarded within Hellenism and those disregarded. The obligation laid upon him in his commissioning by the risen Christ was to take the gospel to all Gentiles 
without regard to Gentile distinctions of race and status. So Paul was called to convert the Gentiles, but he was not called to think like the Gentiles. He was called to win the Gentiles, but he was not called to accept their categories of thought, to accept the way they saw the world and divided up the world. Paul emphasizes this distinction with the Corinthians as well in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's called to reach them, to get through to them, but not on their own terms, not by accepting their wisdom. Instead, He's going to have to challenge it. And churches often imagine that we've been called to reach a particular culture. We've been called to reach a particular demographic. And if you want people like that to be comfortable in your midst, then you have to be like that. And Paul himself says that he was, he was attempting to be all things to all men in order to win some. And we tell ourselves, well, that, that, that's what he means. That's what he means. He's, he's a chameleon. Right? He's adopting whatever uh, mindset is necessary to communicate to people who share that way of thinking. That's not exactly right. Paul was all things to all men in the sense that he was like them in their condition. Like we see that in the way that he speaks to the Romans. I'm one of you. We will mutually encourage one another. We are together in this. But they were not together in their way of thinking. Otherwise, he would have flattered their categories he would have congratulated them on their wisdom rather than saying to them, I'm eager to speak to you because I have an obligation to the wise and to the foolish, to the Greek and to the barbarians. That includes you, but not just you. It also includes those whom you despise and look down upon. That's the kind of cultural challenge that Paul embraced. He was like them in their condition, but not like them in their thinking. He did study to understand their thinking, but he studied to understand it so that he could use it to bring them to a different way of thinking. He didn't merely accept their logic, their philosophy, their categories. He used those things to show them the ultimate bankruptcy of that way of thinking. It's what he does on Mars Hill. He challenges their assumptions by using them to, to push them, right? to push those people to reconsider the way they saw the world. And that's what the ministry of the gospel throughout the New Testament does. Whether we're talking about the apostles who grew up as more or less devout Jews, who at the thought of spreading the gospel to Gentiles, as, as Peter was called to do, thought, no way. This is not, this is not right. This isn't, it's not for them. And he is forced divinely to unlearn that lesson and realize the gospel is for more people than you thought it was for. The same challenge was faced by the Gentiles as well. That they too would have to see that what God was doing was larger than what they imagined, included more than they imagined it could possibly include. That those who were foolish in their eyes 
could be lifted up by God and blessed by God and used by God just as much as they could. That was a lesson that they had to learn. It's a lesson that we have to learn as well. This is one of the things God is teaching us as a church, is that we can't just be a church for ourselves. We can't flatter ourselves that we've been called to reach a certain demographic, and the demographic, whoever you ask, is usually people like me. We need more people like me in this church who share my interests and my way of life. Uh, That's nice, but no. No. The Spirit is doing something larger than we imagine, more inclusive than we imagine, more challenging than we imagine. But don't be discouraged by that. Be encouraged. Here's here's what I'm not saying to you. I'm not saying the lesson that Paul is teaching us is that we've all got to start thinking in more inclusive categories. We've got to start including more people than we've included. And we've got to stop writing people off that we would have written off before. And that's our duty now. We need to start doing better at that. Because I believe this is what the Spirit is doing. And the Spirit's going to do it whether you see it or not. I'm not concerned that, that God will not do his work if you don't get on board. And I don't think Paul was concerned about that either. But I want us to see it. And I want us to welcome it. And I want us to rejoice in it. To rejoice in what God is doing in the lives of people not like us. That God is giving you brothers and sisters who are so different from you. That that it's hard to understand where they come from. You you hear them talking about their lives and it sounds like gibberish, bar, bar, bar. They're not like us, and yet they are us. They're our family that Christ has brought us together, that Christ has fused all these pieces together in a body in a way that we couldn't imagine, and it's an occasion for joy. It's something that we should be happy about, that we should feast over. The Romans are going to be challenged as they read this letter. The Spirit's at work in them, but they don't have a theological education. There's a lot of things that are going to stretch their understanding, and it's going to be our experience as well. The further we get into Romans, the more stretched and challenged we're going to be by what God says. It's going to turn out that none of us are where we need to be. None of us already get it. But it's important to see at the beginning that all of it comes from love. The Spirit challenges us because... He loves us because we are his sons and daughters. He is raising us up into what we ought to be. And the Romans, when they got that letter, I think their hearts would have answered. They would have seen the longing in Paul's words, and their hearts would have reciprocated. They would have longed all the more for Paul to come to them. And he did eventually in chains. There were those in that church who ministered to him in his humiliation. This exalted apostle brought low, and they served him in his captivity. And it was beautiful. But think about this. As far away as Rome was on the edge of the world from the standpoint of Jerusalem, there's a sense in which we, too, are like those Romans, uh, not geographically, but chronologically. We live as far from Paul as it has ever been possible to live so far. In the 21st century, we are as remote from Paul's world, his experience, and all of that that is possible to be. And if you imagine this letter written not just to them but to us, you feel a love that speaks to you over centuries, over millennia. The thought 
But after 2,000 years, there would be people in a culture that to them would have seemed impossibly advanced and sophisticated and wise, and that the faithful are still there. That even in a place like that, there are faithful people. Imagine the longing that he would have felt, the longing that he feels to be one with us. There is a bond, a unity that exists among believers, not just here in this room and not just here in this city and not just with all of the churches throughout the world at this moment, but with all of the believers who have ever lived and will live. We are one with them all, part of that bond, and they rejoice to see us. Rejoice at what the Spirit is doing as we will rejoice in the future to see what God is doing in others. The work of transformation that Jesus does in our hearts and in our community is a work that produces joy above all else, that restores us to a right relationship with God so that we can rejoice in his presence. So let us always cling to that joy that we have in Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.